Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. This is J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Today, my guest is Charlie Cooper, who I met when we began working together at State Street about 10 years ago. Charlie is currently the Chief Communications Officer at R3, which is a leading provider of enterprise technology and services using distributed ledger or blockchain technology. Prior to joining R3, Charlie was a Senior Managing Director at State Street. Earlier roles prior to that included being a Director at Deutsche Bank, Chief Operating Officer of the U.S. Government's Commodity Futures Trading Commission, Special Assistant to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, an Associate at law firm Kirkland & Ellis, Speechwriter for the U.S. Attorney General, and Assistant Press Secretary for the Dole Kemp 1996 presidential campaign. So a tremendous amount of variety over the years for Charlie. He earned both his bachelor's degree and his law degree from Georgetown University. He is a native of New York City, where he continues to live today. Charlie, welcome. Great to have you today. Glad you could join. JR, thanks for being back, man. It's great to be here. Good to see you again. It's been a while since we've caught up. We had a little bit of a chance to catch up yesterday, but we'll do it in a more structured way today, perhaps. Let's start with your current role. Tell the audience about R3 and your remit as the chief communication officer. Sure. So R3 is a software company, is the quickest way to say it. And what we do is we build enterprise-grade blockchain and private computing solutions, confidential computing solutions for regulated industry players. So if you think about our former employers, large banks, exchanges, clearinghouses, any large institutions that handle robust financial transactions, financial products, digital assets, et cetera, we build the software that allow them to play in the new economy. And in terms of my role, I'm the chief communications officer, which is a bit of a misnomer because I oversee the communications and the PR but I also oversee all of our government relations, policy, right. and lobbying work, which becomes increasingly important as global actors are paying more and more attention to the technology and want to make sure that what we're doing comports with what they're okay with us doing. Yeah, you were in R3 pretty much from the beginning, I think, from when you left State Street, where we worked together. What led you there? It was an accident, actually. I had left State Street in late spring of 2015 with the intent of doing the 2015-2016 presidential campaign cycle and was in pretty advanced stage talks to do a super PAC around that campaign. And at the same time, the CEO of what had not yet been called R3, a guy named David Rutter, who had been the head of electronic broking at ICAP, he and I had negotiated a deal while I was at State Street for his other firm to license some of their software to launch a product And he and I met across a negotiating table and had a hell of a time, at first not very pleasant, and then later pleasant, negotiating a deal or renegotiating a deal that he'd originally had in place with State Street. And over the course of those conversations and occasional heated exchanges, we actually came to really like each other. Fast forward to a couple of months later in the summer of 2015, 
It was go no go time on the political thing. It wasn't quite coming together the way I'd wanted to. The role that I thought I was going to have, I didn't end up having. And while I was trying to sort out whether or not that was going to work, Dave Rutter laid his chips on the table and said, look, I'm putting together a team. If you want in the founding table, the cap table, come join us. And I went back to a young mathematician who worked for me at the derivatives desk at State Street. And I said, do you know what blockchain is? And he looked at me like I was a complete idiot and said, well, of course I do. And I said, can you explain it to me? And he explained it to me. And I came back in the next day to see Dave and still not understanding exactly what I was signing on for. I said, yeah, this sounds great. Let's do this. And here we are almost seven years later and the journey's still going. It's been a hell of a ride. Yeah. So how's it been starting from ground zero and now continuing to work? I think you said uh, when we spoke the other day that you're at 350 people. So it's clearly gained traction. But what's it been like to go from zero to 350 people? I would say it's had its ups and downs. Overall, (laughs) still having a hell of a time. Right. We're both at the age and point in our career where we don't do things that we don't have to do. And that's a very fortunate place to be. I very much like what I'm doing or having a great time, but that's not to say there haven't been challenges. And there's a bit of a nostalgia for the days where it was just a handful of us in a shared office space that we borrowed from someone or we rented WeWorks for a while. We were all jammed in in these little desks trying to find room to type. We weren't even entirely sure what the product was going to be. We weren't entirely sure who the clients were going to be. But we knew we were onto something. There was something banging around in this crypto blockchain DLT space that none of us really understood, but we knew we had to understand. And we were able to get there and over the course of time, build a business. Now, between a handful of us, eight of us, I think initially in that original conference room to 350 in 15 countries, you go through days of unbelievable exhilaration where you land a bunch of great clients and you feel like you're really on top of the world. And then you have other days where the market is in trouble or you're hearing from clients, they don't understand what you're doing and there's not product market fit and it comes and goes. And I would say that I am glad that I have done it. I don't know that at my age, now that I'm 50, I would go back and do a startup again, but it's been a hell of a time and it continues to be a hell of a time because we're still on the roller coaster, but it feels good. So everybody's heard of crypto. I would say a good many people at this point have heard of blockchain. People might not know it by distributed ledger technology, but help the audience understand how what you're doing is different from crypto itself. Sure. So if you think of crypto as a token or as a form of cash, a form of currency, which is, I think, how most people think of it, an electronic version of anything, a digital version of anything can't actually operate or exist without a software infrastructure that underpins it. So Blockchain itself, in its most traditional form, is the operating system on which crypto, originally Bitcoin, now it's expanded into thousands of new tokens, but originally Bitcoin operated on. It was the software that made crypto possible, if you think about it. And what we do now is we take that software and we have built a different version of it called Corda, which is our threes platform, that is fit for purpose for regulated entities and digital assets of all sorts. So think of central bank digital currencies, think of stable coins, think of digital shares of stock or digital mortgages or digital bonds. The software that we build allows financial market participants more broadly to participate in the new economy in either old assets that have been digitized or some of the new stuff that you see in crypto, and it allows it to work within the confines of a regulated environment in which they operate. And your biggest clients are who today? Our biggest clients are the biggest banks, exchanges, and clearinghouses in the world, and many of them you have heard of. They're household names for guys like you and me who've been in banking for a long time. Our cap table, which is public, is over 40 banks, Bank of America, HSBC, SBI, you name it. 
from all around the world, as well as companies like Intel, a major software company. So these are large institutions. And that actually, it's interesting in that our investors are also our clients, right? We're a strategic investment for them. And they have taken a bet that what we're going to be able to build is something that they also want to use themselves. And therefore, we build to their specifications. And lo and behold, it turns out that the stuff that works for our investors works for the more broad financial services community. So it's asset managers, it's buy sides and sell sides, it's financial market infrastructure players, you name it, predominantly in regulated spaces. And I have to ask you, since we're talking about crypto, admittedly, you're a half step removed from it, but crypto has made a lot of people really rich and it's completely baffling to other people. What's your take on crypto? I would say it's still completely baffling. I would say we understand what it is and why it operates. I have some small crypto holdings myself. R3 itself is not a crypto company. Like I said, we build software, we don't issue tokens, but we very much see the value and the innovations in it. Where I would say it's baffling, back to the original point in your question, is there was a long feeling really up until the last couple of months ago among the crypto maximalists, among the people who are the original believers that somehow crypto is immune from the laws of economics. You probably heard the the statement made a lot over the last several years that Bitcoin was a hedge against inflation. That was a good place to put your money and that no matter what happened to the global economy, crypto would remain strong. Well, that proved to explode pretty spectacularly over the last couple of months. And what you have seen is that these new instruments, while they definitely have attributes that have not been created or seen before, are still subject to the law of economics. And there are a lot of people who lost a lot of money recently. Some of them probably understand why they did. Some of them didn't. There's an obvious explanation for some that they got invested, involved in an asset class that didn't make any sense and that was new to them and no one really saw coming. And there was also a lot of people who got hurt because of leverage. If you remember leverage, we had a lot of problem with that in the 08 crisis. Institutions that were borrowing almost unlimited money to invest in crypto which is a great business strategy for an asset class that constantly appreciates. Well, if it goes the other direction, leverage becomes a big problem pretty quickly. And I think a lot of people are feeling that pain right now. Yeah. I mean, whether you call it a currency or whether you label it as a more generic asset class, I mean, it's highly volatile. It went up and up and up and up and up for the most part for a very long period of time, but it has had its down cycles. And you have to factor that in just like you would any other investment. But I think it's there was a period of time and there's people who thought, oh, like, how can you lose? Like, it's crypto. It just keeps going up. And Right. Know, Every and asset goes up until it goes down. All right. Enough about crypto, because that's not really the focus of this podcast, many others, but not this one. So yes. let's go back to the beginning of your career. So you went to Georgetown undergrad. You majored in government. What did you see yourself doing back then? We're going to get to the political part of your career shortly. But did you see yourself going into politics then or were you envisioning something else? No, I very much did. And and in fact, when I graduated, well, my first job when I graduated was actually working at a bar called The Tombs in Georgetown, where I had spent my college years drinking. And the day after graduation- A very very famous bar. Well, yeah, it was pretty well known down in DC and maybe some other places. And I've been a generous contributor to its coffers for many years. But you say I'm a government major, which is technically true on paper. The reality is I was a political philosophy major. And therefore, got a government degree. But when I came home and told my parents I was going to be a philosophy major and I thought my father was going to go into cardiac arrest, I pivoted a little bit and I had enough credits in government to actually become a government major, even though my focus had been on political philosophy and theory. What that all meant was when I graduated college, I was unemployed and I went to wait tables, which was actually one of the most important and best experiences of my life, albeit very short lived because I was terrible at it. 
But I'd always envisioned my career in politics. And it was only about a month after I'd have to go back and look at my initial pay stubs from the Cato Institute. I got a job. I'd done a bunch of internships in college and high school on Capitol Hill and on campaigns. But my first real jacket and tie job after college was working as a public affairs assistant, clipping newspapers and monitoring media for a think tank in Washington called the Cato Institute. And I had assumed that my trajectory from then on was going to be one in politics and public service. It turned out sort of that way and still may turn out that way. But at the time, when I was studying in school, there was no question what I was going to do, which set me apart a little bit from many of my contemporaries who were thinking that they were going to leave college and then figure it out. And I kind of had an idea, which was at least somewhat settling, even though I had no idea how I was going to pull it off. So it wasn't long after that that you went to work on the Dole Kemp presidential campaign when yeah. they were running as a team in 1996, right? What was it like? You were 23, 24 years old, probably at that time, to be in the throes of a political campaign, I guess, back when Dole was running against Clinton in 96, right? Yeah. Honestly, Jared, it was one of the most invigorating and fantastic experiences of my life. You know, you're 23 years old. I was a press flack. I was talking to reporters sometimes on the record, mainly not saying inanely stupid things, I'm sure. Drafting press releases, pitching in occasionally to write speeches in the motorcade when the boss didn't like the speech. And I was banging away on my laptop, which weighed about 40 pounds back then. It was as big as a PC. It was pretty heady stuff. I started making coffee and clipping newspapers and doing all the junior level stuff. And right as the primaries began in earnest, the press secretary, a guy named Nelson Warfield, who's still a dear friend to this day, called me and asked me if I owned a garment bag. And I met him in New Hampshire and I traveled with the candidate from then until election day. And it was an unbelievable rush. I learned an incredible amount. I probably got a little cocky along the way. You know, you jump in and out of motorcades every day, age 23, and you really think you run the world. And then the day after we lost, the beeper stopped buzzing and no one was calling and nobody cared anymore. And that was a pretty big come down for someone of that age. But it was honestly one of the most interesting and greatest experiences in my life. And it ended up setting the stage for a whole bunch of relationships that would come into play later at the political level, at the legal level, at the communications level, and all the stuff that I still do to this day in larger or smaller measure. Being in the middle of a political campaign, it's a very unique situation other than the relationships What did you take away in terms of skills you developed that you've relied on since then? So I'd say there were some hard skills and then there were some soft skills. So the hard skill was I learned how to write fast as a press flack or as someone who is doctoring speeches on the fly. You need to be able to put things in the written word and condense big concepts or long explanations into very tight sound bites. And you need to be able to do it in near real time. There were actual times I remember pulling up to an event, having changed a speech and handing the drive to the advance man who was waiting at the limo to run to the teleprompter to plug it in and download the speech as Dole was walking up the steps to give his remarks. Writing in general is a fantastic skill. It is incredible to me how many people, even at top universities who don't know how to write, writing quickly is incredibly impactful. And that was great. So that's the first thing. The second hard skill is know when to talk and when not to talk. That's interesting Mm -hmm. as a press flag because your assumption is you always need to get in the story and have an answer to something. Learning what stories to sit out, understanding when a news cycle is going to take on a life of its own and that does not require your involvement or is better for you to sit out. That's another, I think, hard skill. I think the soft skill, I would say, is probably two things. One is just learning to operate under pressure. There is no instance in which you get given two or three months on a deadline. 
or even a week on a deadline. It just, it isn't how it operates. So it's very much minute to minute and that's super intense and managing a new cycle is super intense. So I think that's very much a soft skill. And I think the other soft skill is really the people piece of it. Even as a press guy, I worked a ton of rope lines with the candidate. Senator Dole would stand out and shake hands for hours at a time, and I would end up walking along with him and hearing how voters spoke to him and what issues mattered to them and how he responded to them and made them understand that he was on top of their issues or needed to learn more about their issues. Know when you can say, I understand what you're talking about, or know when you have to tell a voter you don't know enough, but you're willing to come back. Those sort of people skills ended up being really, really valuable to learn as well. And I learned at the right hand of someone who, while he didn't win, still got to the point of nearly winning the highest office in the land. And that requires a level of political skill that very few people have. So that was a sort of soft skill side. Then you went to law school in Georgetown. When did the idea of going to law school sort of come to being for you? I've been thinking about it for several years, but I wasn't committed. And I took five years between undergrad and graduate before I did it. And it crystallized once I was having a conversation with a guy named Larry Bathgate, who had been a mentor to me, a Republican operative and fundraiser for many, many years. And he told me to go get a law degree. And I asked him why. And he said, if you're going into politics, there will always be campaigns that you lose. They'll be your campaigns or they will be someone else's campaign that you're working on. And you will need a place to go and hang your hat. And he said, the one skill set, the one degree that will carry with you and have a very clearly defined job attached to it will be a law degree. So go get a law degree, spend a couple of years in the private sector so that when those dark times come in politics, you will be able to go with credibility to a firm and say, hey, I have skills that you can use. I have a network that you can use, et cetera, and take me on board for a while. And that advice turned out to be really, really good because that's exactly what I ended up doing. So you went to law school. You were writing speeches for the U.S. Attorney General, I think, while you were in law school, right? And then then you ended up at Kirkland and Ellis. So give a little bit of background on sort of how both of those things happened. The speechwriting thing, again, sort of an accident, but there are no accidents in Washington. It's all about networks. One of my professors in law school went on to be the assistant attorney general for legal policy under George W. Bush, a guy named Viet Dinh, and he ended up leading the effort to write the Patriot Act in the aftermath of 9-11. After 9-11, about a week later, I was sitting unbelievably frustrated in law school trying to focus on my classes and unable to do so. And I called Viet and I said, look, you got to get me in. I mean, somehow I'll intern, like just bring me in so I can help. And he had spoken to the communication shop, the then speechwriter, a woman named Jessica Gavore. I realize I'm throwing all these names that mean nothing to people, but to me, they're incredibly important. And Jessica was the only speechwriter for a person who had overnight been catapulted into one of the most high profile jobs in the federal government. I went and interned for her And we sat down the first day, looked at the list of public comments that were coming up. I can't tell you how long the list was. It was mind-blowing. We divided up and we just started writing. And we just kept writing and writing and writing for months. And my legal professors understood what I was doing and were appreciative of it because it was tied to the legal profession. And my Justice Department colleagues knew that I was still in law school. So they were fine if I was ditching out during the day to actually go to school as opposed to showing up at the office. So it was two communities of people that very much respected each other and let me straddle those two worlds. And then coming out of it, you go into a private sector job and Kirkland and Ellis was a firm that I had summered at both summers while I was in law school and was lucky enough to get offered a full-time position and headed there after taking the bar right after school and dove into pretty standard commercial litigation. 
Yeah, it's amazing just on the, the speech writing internship that you had that it doesn't always happen that you have two groups who are aligned in letting you kind of live in the intersection of two worlds at the same time and willing to sort of take the compromises to go with that. So you were very lucky that that worked out for you. Definitely. There are always competing interests. And I wouldn't even say externally in your own mind when you're presented with multiple different opportunities, but there are trade-offs between those opportunities you're often making sacrifices on one to do the other. Now, truthfully, my grades probably were sacrificed a bit because I wasn't knocking the ball out of the park. But yes, I didn't have to give up law school to be a speechwriter, and I didn't have to give up writing speeches to be in law school. And that was, I think, really because it was a confluence of two communities of people who had both been in each other's shoes at one point or wanted to be in each other's shoes at one point. And therefore, they were willing to tip their hat and say, yeah, if you can make it work, go for it. Yeah, which is awesome. So then you make another career shift. There are a lot of these coming. Yeah, Yeah, there are a lot of these. I know. Kind of all over the map, JR. I'm not sure what this means. Well, everybody's career journeys are different, Charlie. So it's all good. So then you went to the Department of Defense and you were working for one of the undersecretaries of defense, if I remember right. How did you end up there? Like making a sort of full jump out of private legal practice world, out of the political world into more just government service? Well, this is where the network piece becomes really important and is incredibly robust in Washington, D.C. The people that you meet in law school, but the people you meet on campaigns and the people you meet in jobs like at the Justice Department, it's a small community of people in Washington. The federal government looks like a behemoth from the outside, but those of us that are the sort of operatives that work in the nexus of policy and politics is relatively small. And it was a word of mouth thing. Paul Wolfowitz, who then was the Deputy Secretary of Defense, was losing his communications advisor who was going on to work for Vice President Cheney. And the role had come up and he knew that he needed to backfill on the comms side, but he also felt that more of a policy bent and potentially a legal bent would be helpful to him. Or maybe I should say when he and I were talking, I argued that that would be useful. I've had the idea that it was really just public affairs he needed. And I pitched him on a broader role about taking some involvement in various different policy and legal conversations. And Paul brought me in at the beginning of 2004, just as the insurgency was beginning to creep up in Iraq after the initial combat mission had ended the spring before, while I was technically doing or having some conversations with the legal policy people, it really became a policy and a spin role and a communications role. And again, it had happened because of people that I knew and conversations that I'd had that when the role popped up, I got a phone call, a funny story about it. I got a phone call from a previous mentor and a press secretary who said, listen, you're about to get a phone call from the Pentagon. And I said, okay. And they said, it's about a job. And I said, well, I have a job. And he responded to me, it's the fucking Pentagon. Take the call. He's like, oh, okay. So I took the phone call. And again, another trajectory change in my life. And I know later on, we're going to talk about some advice to give to folks, but always take the meeting. And I didn't think the meeting was going to be important. And it ended up absolutely changing the way I looked at my career. It had impact on geography for me, on my personal life, and a whole bunch of other things. And it was incredibly worthwhile. So how did it change the way that you looked at your career? Well, first of all, I'd never really seen myself in a policy role. I'd always envisaged myself more as a press flack. I'd always envisioned myself more as a campaign guy. The outside world, the government politics all looks the same. There are very different camps when it comes to the people who get people elected and the people who work in administrations or run for office themselves and then try to do the business of government. 
And those two sides don't always often talk to each other. I always thought I was going to be a campaign guy. The rush of 96 was still in my blood. And then I moved to the Pentagon and suddenly the caliber and the weight of the decisions that I was making felt that much more palpable and that much more serious. And as a result, I felt in a way far more meaningful. It was a little less blood sport, but it was a lot more sort of gravitas or gravity, I guess. The stakes became higher. Now, that's interesting to say the stakes on a presidential campaign, that's pretty high. But when you're in a role, certainly at the Pentagon in the aftermath of 9-11 and Bush administration decisions to go to war in Afghanistan and Iraq, you are at the epicenter of a changing global order. You're at the epicenter of policymakers that are trying to navigate an entirely new world. We had not seen 9-11 coming. No one had an idea of how geopolitics was going to shift on a dime. And we were part of the group that was making it up as we went along. There were obviously mistakes made, decisions that you go back and you retread in your mind. But being in that room was not something I'd ever anticipated. But once I was in it, I felt a real affinity to it. It it had a real meaning to me. And it went from a little less politics and a little more public service. And I could feel that shift almost in real time. Yeah. You then went over to a different part of the government, the Commodities Future Trading Commission, CFTC, which regulates parts of the financial markets, as you and I are both aware, different aspect of public service. So I'm sure there's a network component to this because it's Washington. There is. <laughs> <laughs> but you were doing this work you're describing as meaningful in the aftermath of 9-11 and then move over to the financial world. How did, or at least the government part of the financial world, how did that happen? It was a networking play. Ruben Jeffrey, who had been the executive director or senior level deputy for the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq, had actually started his career at Goldman Sachs. He was a lawyer out of law school and then went on to Goldman Sachs and had spent a good chunk of time after 9-11 in the federal government helping coordinate the U.S. response to 9-11. And when it was time to come in from the field a bit, he got a call from the White House to see if he would go in and take over the derivatives regulator because it was something that was pretty obvious to him, something based on his skill set. But still being a political and policy role, because it's a public sector role, he needed a chief of staff and a chief operating officer to come in and actually sort of keep the trains running on time and to handle a lot of the day-to-day responsibilities for the commission while he focused on the sort of big vision for U.S. regulation and U.S. government involvement or lack of involvement, depending on the issue, in markets and how they function. So I called Ruben. I said, hey, congratulations on the CFTC role. And he said, great. Do you want to go with me? And I said, well, what would you want me to do? And he said, how about chief of staff? And I said, I'll do it. And that was a, I'm not even kidding, like a five to seven minute phone call. And I made the leap over there. And the first thing I did was figure out exactly what the CFTC did and how it worked and had to learn a lot. I practiced when I was at Kirkland and Ellis. I had some cases before the CFTC, but I was a young guy. I was doing very junior stuff. I didn't really get into the meat of what was going on. So I had a steep learning curve in terms of understanding how the agency worked and what its substance was. But I came to it with a political set of skills that was useful in working with members of Congress on our oversight committees and our appropriations committees, as well as at OMB and at the White House, as the executive branch was trying to understand what the derivatives market would mean then, as it turned out much more importantly, several years hence. Yeah, it was probably an interesting time to be there when you look back, because it was relatively up close to the time when the crisis hit back in 2008 where derivatives certainly played a pretty big role, but presumably just the scope of what was possibly going to happen wasn't really apparent to anybody, a little bit similar to the 9-11 situation that you talked about earlier. 
A couple of things were interesting about it. First of all, at the time, the CFTC's jurisdiction was just on the futures and options market. It didn't cover swaps. That's what would be added to it after the 2008-2009 crisis. In 2007, we were on the president's working group, the CFTC, SEC, Fed, and Treasury, and we began to see more and more turbulence and swings in the market, and the mechanisms of the market felt more and more uneasy and uncomfortable, yet the CFTC's markets were operating normally. So while they would see greater volatility, potentially, the mechanisms that were in place, the margin requirements, and the backstops that existed in the derivatives markets turned out to be more robust than in many of the other markets. So we knew something wasn't right, but I think no one could put their finger on it. In this day and age, everybody looks back and tells you how they predicted the financial crisis. Well, that's bullshit because if they knew the financial crisis was coming, they would have made a lot of money off it and they didn't. It caught a ton of people by surprise. And we as an institution were trying to figure out what was coming in 2007. It felt unstable, but we weren't sure why. So even though our markets were operating well in the broader context, there was a sense something was coming, but nobody could put their finger on it. Yeah, fair enough. So that was 15 years ago, kind of your first major foray into the financial services space. Was there something that clicked for you about being in financial services? Because you've largely been in financial services and albeit a variety of different ways since then. Yeah, I'll be blunt. It wasn't about clicking. It was that I'd spent a good portion of my career in public service and I wasn't sure what the future would hold in terms of my personal life and potentially settling down. It wasn't clear where I wanted to go, but I did know that I hadn't put myself in a financial position yet that would make me comfortable if a rainy day came. And that really is the truth. So I had a conversation with the chairman, with Ruben Jeffrey, and he was going to the State Department at the time to take over as undersecretary under Condi Rice. We were talking about whether I would go with him. And I said, look, I think I got to go make some money. And he very generously offered to pick up the phone to anybody in his Rolodex and made a set of introductions to me. And during those conversations, I ended up speaking at length with the group at Deutsche Bank, which was then largest derivative shop on Wall Street, and ended up moving to London to run legal operations for them, which was, at the time, it was called LRC, Legal Risk and Capital. We colloquially refer to it as risk management. Right as the crisis began to hit, And I accidentally found myself at sort of a ground zero place in financial services when I thought I was just going to go sit at a bank for a while and put some money in the bank. Well, it ended up being a hell of a lot more intense than I'd expected, but that seems to be a trend in my career. Now, we've been in some interesting places at interesting times, and there are certainly worse things that you can (laughs) say when you look back on your career. What did you do after you left Deutsche before you came to State Street, where you and I met? So I left Deutsche Bank in the spring of 2009. I came back to the States. I put my stuff in the attic, got rid of my flat in London, got in my car, and I drove around the country for four months. National parks, presidential libraries, visiting old friends. And then I ended up in Los Angeles and wrote a screenplay with my best friend. Notice I say screenplay and not a movie because it hasn't been made into a movie yet. You know, there's always hope. He's actually a guy named Michael Susi, a writer and a director that he does this for real. I was just sort of the former banker, government guy who's looking for something to do. But I spent a couple of years, frankly, trying to figure out what exactly I was going to do. Not entirely sure. The financial crisis was well and truly upon us at that point. So there weren't jobs being thrown around. So I continued a road trip for a while. I lived at the beach. I was doing some reading and some writing and ultimately started getting bored and making a set of phone calls, which turned into a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy through the network that introduced me to the State Street team, and in particular, Cliff Lewis who you and I both know well, because we spent a lot of time running the derivatives business for him. 
you have an IMDb profile, which I did not know about you. That's unfortunate and shocking. I can tell you that is not about the script. I think that's probably because I do TV hits for the company or I do documentary hits for them. And somehow I didn't put that up. I can claim credit. I wish it were more exciting than the fact that I do blockchain documentaries, but it's certainly not for my acting career, unfortunately. When you joined State Street, did you have a full sense of what you were getting into in terms of what the job was about? No, but that was actually by design of Cliff. The way that he ran the business was he pulled in people of various different talents and threw them at problems or at roles as they came up. I don't even know what my title was, truthfully, when I started. I would subsequently graduate to be Martine Bond's COO for the trading and clearing team. But what I do remember a lot of the focus being was this was at the point that the Dodd-Frank recommendations or legislation in the US was beginning to be written into actual regulations. And State Street was launching a derivatives clearing business. They were already one of the biggest custodians on Wall Street for the derivatives business. The Title VII stuff and Dodd-Frank was a big deal for them. And I was brought in to help navigate change in the business under those regulations and to help shape some of those regulations. I spent a lot of time in D.C. during that time working with people to understand what was coming and to try to shape what was coming so that we could then feed that back to State Street and be prepared to take advantage of whatever business opportunities would develop. I don't remember, honestly, what my title was. It was just sort of like, come on in here, we'll figure it out. And well, we figured it out. Yeah, I mean, we were doing a lot of figuring it out. I think State Street had a sense at the time that they wanted to do more in the derivative space. As you're saying, Dodd-Frank, which was really written in response to the crisis, to try and put more governance around how the financial institutions were using derivatives. They knew they had a role to play in that. They weren't sure exactly what it was going to look like. And you and I and others spent a bunch of time trying to figure that out and out seeing clients and talking to them about how they viewed the derivative markets. It was interesting, but it was a pretty ambiguous role in many ways as well for both of us. Well, I remember several times you and I coming out of meetings and comparing notes. So when we went into the next meeting, we knew more than we went into the last one with. We were learning at the same time our clients were trying to sound informed, calling Washington, trying to get the latest of what was going on at various different committees, trying to understand what the CFTC was writing so that we went into the meeting after lunch as opposed to the meeting before lunch, we had more updated information based on what they needed. It was a constant hustle. It was a constant learning as you go and helping the clients. If you and I couldn't give them the specifics of what was going to happen, we could assure them that we were at least on the ball enough that along the journey, we would get them where they needed to go, even if we were learning with them. Were you in the earthquake meeting in New York? The earthquake meeting? I don't think so. Was there an earthquake? It was down in Virginia. People may remember this. So we're sitting in, I think, the General Motors building with a bunch of pensions. I think General Motors pension was one of them. They called all the big banks in to talk about what they were doing to get ready for Dodd-Frank. I think I got roped into this meeting with whoever else, clearly not you, kind of the 11th hour. We go to this meeting. It was basically just a glorified way for the pensions to just push us all day, right? And so the meeting was going (laughs) rough. And in the middle of the meeting, somebody's kind of going on a little bit of a rant. And the shares start shaking and they don't even notice. This person doesn't even notice. The rest of us are all kind of looking around each other. What's going on? And about two minutes later, we get told to evacuate the building. So we walk down 45 flights of stairs. I've never been so happy to walk down 45 flights of stairs because that meeting was over. (laughs) It never got rescheduled. It wasn't going well. It was very good to get out of it. It was just sort of one of these funny circumstances that happened in the many, many meetings that we did over the years. It took a literal tectonic movement and the earth's crust to get you out of a meeting. Well, that was worth it, man. I mean, that seems like a trade-off worth taking. I love it. 
All right. So back to your career. So throughout all of this time, you're still doing the political thing. You're getting involved in supporting people on campaigns. You were going to conventions. How did all of that kind of play out in the background for you while you were doing your financial services thing, trying to make a little money to put in the bank? That's a fair question. I think the only way to think of it is that if it matters, you make time. And that could be anything. You could be a painter. You could be a musician. You could be you could be a race car driver. I mean, we've all got our thing or our things. And if it matters to you, you find the time. And I would also suggest if it matters to you, you need to find the time. It's amazing how many people, I think you and I both know over the course of our careers, that found themselves where the job was it and the rest of the stuff took a back seat or they pared down a lot of the things that they cared about. Yeah. And they were making sacrifices that made sense to them. And I 100% get it. And given their personal circumstances, it might have made the sense to make those sacrifices. I was in a situation where I was able to just continue to drive pretty hard and not sleep as much as I now need to at this age. But I was able to keep pursuing something that mattered and I made it work. And I was also very forthcoming with my bosses. They knew exactly what I was involved in. I still, to this day, while I do run the government relations at R3, I'm involved in various different political conversations going on every election cycle, policy conversations. I've spent a lot of time paying attention to what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, and I've done you know commentary on that. And my partners have been very good about letting me do that, but that's also because I've been very upfront with them that I am going to do it. So yeah. it's important to find some of the things that matter to you. And if you're willing to say to them, look, this matters to me, I need to make this work for me so that I can continue to work well for you. A good boss is going to understand that and accept that and realize that the more you thrive generally in life, the better performer you're going to be for them at your job. I actually agree with you. I think there are certainly circumstances where things just are mutually incompatible, right? There are those, I'd say, boundaries that exist with any employer, but I think there's also a lot of latitude to make it work. And I think it's going to become more common as people start to have more sort of portfolio careers, right? You've had a portfolio career, but it's it's been lots of different things over the course of your career, but more and more you're seeing people doing like multiple things at once. I think you're seeing people do multiple things at once. And I think you're seeing post-COVID, I know people wax on and on about the impacts of COVID. And I think a lot of it's overstated, but I do think this is important. More and more people had a bit of a wake-up call that the way they had been operating up until March of 2020 was not the way they want to continue to operate. That the way in which they had focused maniacally on work oftentimes came at the expense of hobbies that they love, children they didn't spend enough time with, community organizations that they felt were important to them or to their families or their loved ones. There are a whole host of things that we're all interested in. The tolerance for giving that up or the willingness to put that aside purely for financial gain at a day job, working for the paycheck as opposed to working to actually live and enjoy life, I think there's a lot less tolerance for that. And I would think in many ways, that's actually healthy. I think we are better performers and better people if we own have a more holistic life and we make as much of the opportunities we're given to try to do as many things as we're given or end up not only going to be happier, I think we're better people. I think we're happier people if we're yeah. doing things that appeal to us rather than just going in and punching a clock in a figurative sense. Of course. And I agree with you that March 2020 was somewhat of a wake-up call for a lot of people as the pandemic settled in and the work from home thing went on and on and on. We won't go back to the way that it was before. The question is, what's it going to look like next? And I don't know that anybody's really got that figured out, but we'll find out, I guess, as the months and years progress. 
Look, I don't know, but I can tell you right now that one example is staring us in the face is the fact that you launched this podcast. Yeah. These topics have been a passion for you for years. And yet it wasn't until the last year, six months where you really sat down and you said, well, hang on a minute. This is important to me. And I have something really meaningful to contribute on this. I want to have these conversations to bring them to a broader audience. And here you are doing it. Yeah. Would that have happened in 2019? I don't know, but here you are yeah. doing it. I think I've countless examples of friends of mine have done similar things. And I think it's great that people are seizing those things and throwing themselves into things that they're passionate about. Yeah. I mean, for me, I learn from it. I take that to work. I benefit from it, but it's also, it's fun. As I said to you the other day, when we were prepping for today, I've caught up with people I haven't talked to in forever, reconnect with people who were in my life in the past, who in some cases were very important people in my lives, very close friends. And you learn a lot from how their life and career journeys have progressed since then. So I just happening to do it with microphone and camera on. So I think it's pretty cool. I'm glad you're doing it, really. You've obviously, you're still in the middle of this R3 journey, but how do you see the sort of maybe over the remaining part of your career, politics still out there for you? Would you ever consider running for office or do you just like being in the arena? So my very clear intent is to stick with R3 until we get this thing where we'd plan to, whether that's an IPO, whether it's a private sale, what have you. I'm fully invested in the journey and I was one of the guys who launched this thing. I'm excited to be here, but public service and politics is a bit like New York City. Once it gets in your blood, it is pretty hard to pull the needle out. What I run for office though is a different question. I came of age working for guys and men and women who played by a different set of rules and we threw punches and we ran tough campaigns, but we did it with civility and we did it with respect. And those days seem long since over, and I'm not placing blame on anyone. It has been a long deterioration over the course of many decades. It's certainly gotten worse in the last five, six, seven years. But I would say that it's a bit disenchanting for someone like me who saw the possibility of what politics could be and now sees it and just decides, I don't know that it's for me anymore. It certainly isn't for me running. If I want to get in a spirited campaign, we're debating serious policy issues. That's one thing. If we're pissing on each other on a Twitter feed and attacking each other's individual characters or we're attacking each other's families or loved ones, that's not a game I want to play. And that's an unfortunate place to be. If you've thought your entire career was going to be one thing, in my case, public service or politics, only to discover that that what you thought it was doesn't even exist anymore. I mean, politics and public service exist, but not the way that they did. It causes a real recalibration. So I'm luckily in a position where for the next several years I'm here, I've got the ability to spend time on the side, continue to do political things, if that makes sense, sit it out when it doesn't. And then I can decide, does politics regain its footing as a place for civil conversation and thoughtful debate? Then I'm willing to get back into it. If those days are gone, it may not be me anymore, truthfully. It may be under the younger generation who has the stomach for it in a way that I don't. I just don't know. I think our political environment has certainly seen times in the past. I mean, we think this is the worst it's ever been. I actually suspect there's been times going back over the prior 200 plus years that it was bad in its own way, but is a very different world than it was when you were supporting Bob Dole and his run against Bill Clinton back in the mid-1990s. So you've talked a bit about some of the career lessons, taking the meeting, you know, tapping into the network, things like that, pursuing passions. What other things really stand out for you that you've learned over the years that you would want to share with people who are listening? I think you've got to be open to things that you didn't think were on your radar. It's great to have a set of goals. It's great to have a general approach. But if all you've ever wanted to be is a banker and someone comes to you with a great job at a different industry, 
if you refuse to hear them out, if you refuse to consider a broader set of options, you might find yourself unwittingly pigeonholing yourself and looking at the world through a straw and not seeing a broader picture on which you can paint a really rich and fulfilling life. I think that's a really important thing. It's, I guess, the expanded version of take the meeting, be open-minded about what's to come. Yeah. I, mean, I might be the opposite end where I've had 10 different careers, if you include sailing coach and waiter. I feel like I've always been interested. I always feel like I'm engaged and I'm having a good time with it. So there's that open-minded piece. I think part of it we discussed earlier, which is this keep your passion projects alive, keep investing in things outside the office that matter. That's incredibly important. I mean, it's incredibly important to who we are as people, that we have a wide variety of things that matter to us, that nourish us. I know it sounds very woo-woo, but sort of give us a sense of spiritual fulfillment and feeding that we need. And whatever that comes to each different person, I think it's important to pursue those things. So I think that's definitely it. The other thing is, and I'm going to sound, frankly, a little bit like an old man, you got to work your ass off. Whatever you're going to do, work hard and go for it and throw yourself into it and make the time for everything that you can and just do it relentlessly. Whatever you're doing, do it relentlessly. The real opportunities in life don't just appear out of nowhere. They're not presented to people who don't actually have the ability to work for them and really try to make the effort. So it sounds old school, but busting your ass is some of the best advice thing I could probably give. It's interesting that you say that. I think that I wonder how much that mindset still really carries, particularly with the younger generation. I mean, they're putting work in a different place relative to other things in their lives. And I think part of that's because they've seen how their parents' careers have gone and a lot of burnout and depression and other issues that I'll say the baby boomer Gen X generations have faced. It makes leading in the world today and an organization a different thing because you can't necessarily count on people thinking about work in the consistent way that the way you do. And you have to really bridge those generational differences and figure out a way to make it work. Very rare that you'd have an organization of 50-something-year-olds. You'd be able to come up with a way of creating an organization that gives everybody kind of the degrees of freedom they're looking for. One thing I'd say is that I think people often conflate working hard with working well. And you can be incredibly productive in less time if you work smart and still leave yourself plenty of room to do those things which you find nourishing in different ways of your life. Working hard doesn't just mean throwing in as many possible hours as you can. In fact, I know some of the hardest, some people who worked the longest hours did so because they actually weren't very good at their jobs and Mm -hmm. they needed more time to be able to do their jobs. I think your point is actually a really good one. The new generation, I think, would benefit from continuing to work hard, but if they're doing it smarter, it would still leave them a whole host of possibilities to juggle, as you put it, a portfolio career, multiple different interests, multiple different professional opportunities, and still excel at all those things. It's not just about putting in as many hours as you possibly can, because a lot of times that actually doesn't end up being productive or help anyone. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely the old adage of working hard and working smart, right? I think I learned that personally when I was a new associate at McKinsey. I had a wife and stepdaughter at home and I wanted to have dinner with them at night. And I made a really solid effort to be on the 630 train home from Chicago when we were living out there so that we could have dinner together. If I needed to do things afterwards, I did, but I tried to really get as much done during the core part of the day as I could so that I didn't end up working myself into oblivion. Any final thoughts, any books you would recommend or anything else you want to share before we break, Charlie? I will send you my reading list, but I just want to say thank you. Honestly, Jared, this has been great. I love the fact that maybe some of the stuff that we've been busting our ass doing for all these decades can be useful to someone who's coming up behind us and trying to figure out their own way. So 
Sure. Anything we can do, I'm happy to do it. And thanks for the invite. Glad we did today. Um, thanks again. Have a good rest of your day. You too, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter or follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.